All right, we ready to jump into the book of Acts? How fun is this? We've been going through the book of Acts. Isn't it just wonderful? Love it. Uh, Hey, I'm actually going to teach tonight uh, rather than preach, which is different for me, but I've been uh, teaching at the school, uh, Riverhouse School of Ministry, come on, and it is uh, unlocking something in me. I told this to Mike Brown before, he's like, sure, AJ, I'll believe it when I see it, Um, but I'm going to try my best to teach tonight, and I got, I I feel like I got a word from the Lord, uh, and we're going to talk about unity tonight, amen? Come on. So, hey, the book of Acts, we're going to probably take the first 20 minutes and kind of just overview where we've been, and then we're going to, we're going to land somewhere. But I'm going to be building for you this whole time. We're going to pretty much go through the whole book, I'm not the whole book, sorry, the whole chapter of chapter two tonight. So buckle up. I think it's really fun because uh, the book of Acts chapter two, I find depending on what kind of church you grow up in, you either really focus on on the first half of chapter two or the second half of chapter two. The first half of chapter two talks about the fire and the presence of God. So I'm guessing if you come from a charismatic background, that's where you've, you grew up in. <laughs> Or if you grew up in a more traditional evangelical church, you probably spent a lot of time kind of bypassed Pentecost and got straight to the unity of believers. But how many of you today know we have to read the whole context? So we're going to read the whole context and go through it tonight. But I love the book of Acts because um, it is a book that is our prophetic foundation as the church. One of the things that I think is so sad um, I think really it's, it's a, a, a statement about the, the, the current state of the church today. But when we read the book of Acts, oftentimes we read it through the lens of, oh man, we just have to get back to those days. But the book of Acts is not meant to be a book of the past. It's meant to be the foundation for us heading into the future. The the things, the miracles that take place in the book of Acts, we should experience the same, if not greater today, because God takes us from glory to glory to glory to glory. Amen. And so when we're reading the book of Acts and we're going through this book as a church, let us commit to Lord, this is the foundation. The, the, The early church laid the foundation for us to be a thriving church today. And I love Acts because it starts with this wonderful statement where Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus, say Theophilus. We're going to say some fun words tonight. I'm going to give you, say homothudon. <laughs> You're like, what did he say? We'll talk about it later. But so it starts off with, with Luke saying, in the prior book that I wrote to you, I, I wrote to you considering all the things that Jesus taught and did. And in that is this implication that the book of Acts is a book about the continuing work and ministry of Jesus Christ through the bride of Christ. Say, Jesus works through the bride of Christ. Amen. And so one thing I can tell you this, I think sometimes we can get really defeated about the current state of the Western church, but can I tell you, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. 
the gates of hell shall not prosper against it. And can I tell you that the church of Jesus Christ has withstood martyrdom. It has withstood persecution. It has withstood political strategies and agendas to try and take it down. But yet here we are again today. The church of Jesus Christ prevails because Jesus Christ is the one building the church of Jesus Christ. So I love, I, I say the church of Jesus is the greatest and the safest place you could ever be because Jesus promises to build his bride. If you're looking for stability, I feel like this is for some of you tonight. If you're looking for stability in your life, get rooted in a church because Jesus builds his church. Families, political systems, trends come and go. But the church of Jesus will always be. Amen? Okay, so through the books, through the book of Acts, there are three primary ways that we see give witness, say witness, to the resurrection and uh, life of Jesus. And Jesus says in Acts 1 that the church is to be his witness, filled with power to be his witness in the earth. And what we see in the book of Acts is the three primary ways that Jesus, the, the witness of Jesus manifests in the church is first through signs, wonders, and miracles. We see throughout the book of Acts miracles, healings, wild, wonderful things happen in the book of Acts. And how many of you know the only reason that is possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Amen. Two, we see Jesus bears witness to his resurrection through encountering people. We see this in Paul, right? Paul, Saul was this, nor, this really bad dude, but he had an encounter with the manifest presence of Jesus Christ that led him to being the greatest apostle that probably ever was, right? So Jesus bore witness to, who, to his death and resurrection through encounters. That's what a lot of us were experiencing last week. We testified of what? Encounters. Say encounters. And then the third thing that brings credible witness to the reality of Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts is unity. And this is one that is really interesting, but in the book of Acts, we will see many times that it talks about the growth of, of the church or the favor that was upon the church. And unity was always a precursor to the growth of the church. There was something so supernatural about the unity of the early church that it bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Unity is just, how many of you know? Unity is just as big of a miracle as a healing, in my opinion, because I don't know about you, I'm not even very compatible with myself. <laughs> like, you, there's plenty of things in me that are contradictory. And the fact that we see over and over again in the book of Acts that unity led to growth is a miracle. And how many of you know Today, we need the miracle of unity to manifest in our midst. Amen? I believe Jesus tonight is going to teach us how to be unified. Does that sound good? 
Okay. Ah, dang it. Mike, you were right. I'm already preaching. Yeah, there he is. Teacher hat, teacher hat, stay, be a good boy. Ha. So you have full permission to drink this whole sermon. If you just need a, if you need the joy of the Lord, just drink the joy of the Lord in. He is good. Okay, Acts 2, 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord. Say one accord. In one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so... I did a welcome the other day and we talked about one accord. But this word one accord is the Greek word called homo thudon. Say homo thudon. We got to get some church merch that says homo thudon on it. You know, when I read this word, I was imagining, I was telling Jordan earlier this, we're going to do like a chant. Homo thudon, homo thudon. But this, this word homothudon is a really unique word that, that takes place 12 times in the whole New Testament. Um, but 10 of those times is in the book of Acts. And it is often translated to one mind, one accord, or with one passion. And it's a unique Greek word that helps us understand the uniqueness of the early church, the Christian community. Um, homothudon, it is a compound of two words, meaning to rush along. So there is an urgency to rush along in unison, say unison. And this commentator that I was reading this week says this word homothudon, the image is almost musical. It's a number of notes that are sounded while different. They harmonize in pitch and tone as instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master. So the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Jesus' church. Whoo! Say homo thudon. Half of you are saying it wrong, but that's okay. I probably am. The word homo thudon is showing this one accord is painting a picture of the heart posture of the early church. Although they were so different, although they had different flavors, although they had different ethnicities, although they had different giftings, when together they were able to step outside of their individual desire and together look at the one concert master and say, I'm coming under your leadership. It's the gathering of one heart and one mind that says we are putting ourselves under the leadership of Jesus. God created each and every one of us with the intent design for us together to come under his leadership. 
His vision has always been and always will be unity under one vision, one man, Jesus. We live, I think sometimes um, it's really hard for us to understand biblical unity because Western culture is the exact opposite of true Hebraic biblical unity. Um, I was reading a book about the early church this week, or not this week, a couple weeks ago, and the author presents this idea that it's really hard for Westerners to understand the, the imminent desire of God for unity with his people under the vision of him because we live in an independent culture. We live in an hour in America and Western world that values independence more than it does togetherness. Eastern world says we is greater than I. Western world, let me find other eyes that agree with my I and form community around that I so that I can live in agreement with those other eyes until they disagree with me. And then I'll go find other eyes that agree with me. So as you know, he, the, the author paints this picture that if you were to show the movie Titanic today in the Middle East, if you were to show the movie Titanic to, to somebody with an Eastern context, they would think that that movie is a horror movie. Because to them, like, she can't leave her fiancé for this really handsome Leonardo DiCaprio because this is what the family wants. And the family's vision is greater than the independence of the eye. But we in America love the independence. And this isn't all wrong, right? This isn't all wrong. That's what makes Western world so creative and wonderful and amazing is the fact that we're entrepreneurs and create. Yet sometimes we miss very important biblical points that God is trying to make because we think Western. But the Bible wasn't written Western. It was written Eastern. How many of you would say you are the image of God? Right? Raise your hand. It's okay. Would you say that? Yeah. We're not. We're not. But that's okay. I mean, how many of you heard, what's your identity? I am the image of God. Nope. Genesis 1.27, and this is what's going to help, right? Genesis 1.27 says that humans, humankind is the image of God. I am not the image of God. I am part of the image of God. But I am not the image of God. Does this make sense? We 
together are the image of God. And the writer of Genesis is making, I promise we'll get back to Acts. The, the writer of Genesis is making this really, really, really profound point. He, and, and by the way, this is such a flex by the author of Genesis. Because in that time, uh, the, the, they're heathen gods and they would create these temples. And in the temples, they would have little images or little idols in the temples to represent that that God that they were worshiping, but the Hebrew God, humankind is what images. He's showing, look at how big Yahweh is. Yahweh, it takes all of humanity to image God. But I want you to see this. So the Hebrew author is trying to get us to see that you actually can't find out your identity if you are not in healthy relationship with other healthy people imaging him. God, the, the author is saying, first we have a communal, you, like the first identity statement that we are given is a communal identity statement. Before you're given the statement that you're a child of God, you are together image of God. And the point of this is when we can be in healthy relationship with other eyes who are imaging him, we will have opportunity for individuality to flourish. But if I live in independence, if I live in independence and try and figure out who I am first, then I will actually have a limit to grow because how many of you know being in healthy relationship with other people owning their image gives freedom to me being fully who God created me to be? Look at your neighbor and say, I need you to be you. Praise God for that. You know what I'm saying? Some of you, I'm glad there's only one. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'd say that about myself. Thank the Lord. But I want to I want to draw something near uh, to your to your mind. So, we are created to be the image of God together. What does it require to image something? If I were to 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 image somebody or someone, what would it require? It would require me to be either close to them or to know them intimately. If I wanted to take an image of you, I have to be near you. Another word for image is mirror. If we are to mirror God, what does this require? It requires for us together to be close to him. God built within our identity for us together to draw near to him because I can't image him unless I know him. I can't image him unless I draw near. Is this making sense? This is our first identity is a priestly identity that we, the priesthood, would together draw near to the Lord so that we would behold him and then imitate him in the earth. Amen? Amen. Okay. 
I find it very interesting that in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, that Eve is by herself. Have you ever noticed that? Eve is by herself. And I never saw that until this week. But she is by herself and the, the serpent comes and tempts her. And the temptation, the first temptation that, e, that human beings experienced was the temptation to be like God but not be in relationship with God. And then here we know Adam comes along after Eve had already fallen into sin and then he joins that togetherness. And all of a sudden, independence is birthed. And we don't have healthy selves imaging, reflecting him. And we know this because in Genesis 5, it says that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. <laughs> but then Adam had Seth in his image and likeness. What the author is trying to point out is that God created us to where we will re reproduce what we are imaging. Are we imaging him? Are we the priesthood together imaging him? If not, we're going to image. And what do we see throughout the whole Old Testament? We see independently living that leads to trouble. Okay, back to Acts. Say back to Acts. Through, from the very beginning of scripture, we see God's intimate desire for us to dwell with him and expand his reign in the earth. He doesn't want us as little individuals to expand his reign in the earth. He wants us together to live in right relationship, imaging him to being fruitful and multiplying throughout all the earth. And we see this. I believe Jesus' high priestly prayer in John when he's praying that, that, that we would be one in him as he is in the Father. It's a prayer of God. It's, he's like, Father, let us be like in the garden again. In the garden, we were one. We were in healthy relationship. They were imaging us. We were creating. We were multiplying. We were expanding our reign in the earth. And sin created independence. And Jesus' high priestly prayer before he endures the cross is, God, would you make us one again? Why? Because God longs for us together to lay down our desire for individual encounter, our desire for individual influence so that we can together come to behold him. Biblical unity is not uniformity. Biblical unity is not agreeing politically. Biblical unity is not all having the same philosophy on money or even theologically. <laughs> Biblical unity is us saying, 
I'm going to minor on the minors and major on the major that he is Lord. Biblical unity is all of us together making a decision that he is first place. Unity in and of itself isn't good unless it's oriented in the right direction. Sometimes we have church movements that are crying out for unity, but like if unity is not for the sake of Jesus and just for kumbaya, that doesn't matter. The, the Tower of Babel, they were unified. The people who crucified Jesus were unified. The, the difference between biblical unity and, and fleshly unity is biblical unity has our gaze on one man. Shaba, somebody say Shaba with me, will you? Here's a quote, A.W. Tozer, we might all be slain. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, tuning fork, are all automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to, when, to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Wow. <laughs> A dub in the house. That is wild. Unity comes not through uniformity, but through each individual as different as he or she may be from others, turning their gaze steadily upon the crucified and risen Jesus. Unity does not come from common language, nationality, race, political agenda, but from a common vision and heart posture that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is in that heart, now we're back, I promise. And it's in that heart posture, that's homothumadon. It's in that heart posture that they were gathered in the upper room. And God is like, they listened to me. You know, they just watched him ascend. And he said, go and pray. And Jesus is probably in heaven being like, I didn't know if they were going to do it or not. But look, that looks like a garden. That looks like a garden that I can make myself home in because of what I did and because they're turning their gaze towards me. Can you imagine how many questions they probably had? They probably had a lot of questions after watching Jesus ascend, but they were obedient and turned their gaze to him. They laid aside probably their personal fears, personal desire for their individual encounter, and they said, we are here to wait upon you. And Jesus from heaven looked at the Holy Spirit and said, go, baby, go! And he came, and he came like a rushing wind, and he came like a fire. 
And he said, those human beings who I created in the garden, they are now the garden that I choose to dwell in. I am now going to fill them with the supernatural presence of God so that they can bear witness to who I am in the earth. I want to make myself home in the people that I formed from the dust in the garden because they have their gaze oriented in the right place. That's good news. Say, I'm a garden. I don't even know how to garden though, but Lord, I'm a garden. Okay, I want to honor our time, so I'm going to skip some stuff. But what we see is God fills human beings with his manifest presence, which is the longing of his heart from the garden. Because they're gathered in one accord. They're gathered in one accord and obviously because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they get what other people think is drunk. (laughs) And they're like, what is going on? Because this fire and wind in the Old Testament that was bound to buildings and, and, and tabernacles and arcs and all these things. This, this fire and wind that is the very presence of God is now on people. And people are like, what in the world? There's something otherworldly happening right now. In Peter's very first sermon, he says essentially, this is for everyone. In a day, in a culture, in a time where there was a spiritual hierarchy in a moment dissipated and Peter said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The spirit of God came immediately to unify, but unify around his presence. This is powerful. I'm going to move on for the sake of time. I wanted to camp there longer, but you get the point. That the Spirit of God came, and the first thing that he wanted to say to creation was, this is for everyone. Have your gaze, have your eyes on me. Okay. Is that good, guys? Okay. It's for all the ladies, it's for all the dads, which is a big deal. I do want, it's a big deal. Can you imagine the presence of God? Only few ever were able to access it. And then all of a sudden, for all people. Luke ends chapter two with something very, very important. Um, And we know it's important because he is using a literary structure called inclusio. Say inclusio. Inclusio is a, I should have put it on the screen. Dang it. It's okay. It's a, it's a literary structure that biblical authors use by making a, a statement and then repeating that very similar statement a few verses later to highlight that same statement, to highlight what's in the middle of these two statements is very, very important. 
Does that make sense? So there's a statement, and then it ends with a statement, and you're like, wait, that was a statement that was not that many verses ago. And this is the author saying, go back and read again. This is important. Isn't that so kind? How many of you need that? It's like this little treasure map, this clue for those of us who are like, wow, why is that saying the same thing twice? That should be like, put a magnifying glass and read what it says. Okay, so Acts 2, 42, or no, Acts 2, 40 through 47. It says, oh, never mind. I want to tell you what the two bookends are first. Sorry, I'm not used to teaching. This is new for me. And so in verse 40, it says, in that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's the first bookend. And then the second bookend is, in the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Same statement used within like seven verses of each other. Very similar statement. And anywhere in the Bible that you see the language of God added to their number or there was increase or there was multiplication of the things of God, what that's doing to the Jewish mind is reminding us of our first call in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. So a Jewish listener, when they were reading and saw in that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and then at the end, and it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, the Jewish listener would have been like, huh, that sounds like the garden. And the author's like, great, you picked up on my clue. Pay attention to what's in the middle. Sound good? So here it goes. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually daily with homo thumidon, one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Scholars believe that within this magnifying glass are the four marks of a community of a believers that are filled with the spirit of God and have their gaze set accordingly. Essentially, the author is like, these four things is what homo thumidon, diverse people under the leadership of one, looks like. You ready for it? First, devoting themselves to the word and works of God. The early church spent time hungry for the word of God. They would regularly go to the outer courts of the temple daily to listen to the teachings from the apostles. I love this. God wants to transform our mind. He doesn't want to just transform our spirit and our emotions. Saying yes to Jesus and living a spirit-filled life is saying yes to becoming a student of the word of God. Whether you're prophetic, pastoral, teacher, evangelist, I don't care. The author of Acts is saying, if you're filled with the presence of God, this is what it looks like. 
that you devote yourself to not only the words of God, but also the, the miraculous parts of God. There should be a lifelong devotion for those who are filled with the Spirit to pursuing lifelong revelation through the word of God and the miraculous of God. We are to study the proclamation of the words of God and demonstration. This is what the early church did. And if we don't do this, we are vulnerable to social pressures of this world. The word of God and the miraculous deconstructs our culturalization to a broken and fallen world. If you want to practice deconstruction from the brokenness of this world, get into the word of God and meditate on the works of God. Okay, that's one. Two, I'm going quick to honor our time. Two, those who are filled with the Spirit walking in homo thumidon, practice common life and or another word that we see used is called fellowship. A life with Jesus as the leader means even in the ordinary aspects of our life, they are now under the influence of him. Him, has, him as my leader changes my relationship with everything. It doesn't just change my alone time. It changes how I spend my money. It changes my relationships. And, and, and a mark of the early church was that they so loved Jesus, that they so magnified him, that the relationship they had with one another was profoundly powerful. Scholars believe that the early church the rich people in the early church sold all of their land investments for the sake of the poor in the church. They live, this, is, this one's messing me up, I'm gonna be honest. They lived with a conviction that I don't need the excess. I don't need the excess when I have brothers and sisters in my own family who are struggling. They saw their life as like, and I think it's important, they sold their excess not for the poor outside of the church, they sold their excess for the poor inside of the church. To care for each other. I believe to live in one accord. I'll be honest, I'm still... This isn't giving it the justice. We'll probably need to have a lot larger conversation about money, but I want this to provoke you. Do you live with everything in your life on the table for him to say that he is the leader of our finances? And do I live with the conviction that I wanna take care of my brothers and sisters in the house of God? I've heard a lot of, Weird sermons about this word fellowship that the early church was almost a communist type of living. I don't think it was that, but what I do think from all the, the, the I, I did a lot of theological work this week, but what I do believe is there was a radical commitment to take care of one, one another. A radical commitment. Say radical commitment. 
They didn't just take care of each other emotionally and spiritually, but also financially and physically. And I want to say this, your relationships should primarily be in the house of God. When you come to know Jesus, your community should change. Um, you can have relationships outside of the church. Absolutely, I do. I'm, I, sometimes I'm like, I really need a break from all you Christians and hang out with people who know how to laugh. Um, but, I, but I will tell you, your relationships should primarily be in, this, in the house of God. That's how God created us, to be in intimate community with one another, gazing at him together. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. Regular practice of communion is the third thing that, the, that was a marker of the early church. Communion wasn't just a cracker they dipped at church every now and then. It was a holy moment where they routinely and regularly practiced the remembrance of his death and resurrection. We all in the Western world need to grow in this. We need to be like the Levites of the Old Testament that kept the blood warm on their hearts. And then four, they were a community marked by prayer and worship. They daily committed to praying and worshiping with one another. They lived with a fervency to be heaven and earth, heaven first and then earth second. How many of you know prayer and worship gives you the perspective that we are not a earth to heaven people. We are a heaven to earth people. And the only, if you're only doing teaching, if you're only practicing fellowship, and if you're only practicing communion, but you're not spending time praying and worshiping, you will be an earth to heaven person. And if you only pray and worship and don't do teaching, fellowship, and communion, you will be a spiritual person that no one can connect with. And that is the fruit of a me and God and nobody else matters mentality. And I want to end with this. The greatest temptation in the church, I believe today, is to be really good at your own gifting. And not the own way that you seem to commune with God. I'm gonna be real, I'm gonna be, can I be vulnerable tonight? The biggest temptation for me as a minister is to get really good at my gift and wait for people to agree with me. This is what we see in so many church movements. And there are lampstand revelations. And do I believe that we should be individual cultivators of the gifts of God on our life? Do I believe that we should primarily work out our gifts and our revelations? Absolutely. But I don't want, our gifts are not the priority. He is. And what the Bible shows us is that we need all four of those things in order to be a kingdom come church. We don't get to pick and choose if I want to be a word person or a spirit person or if I want to be a throne room person or, or a, a temple person. It's like, no, God says if you want to multiply 
Like the bookends inclusio, if you want to do this, you need all four of these things as intimate parts of your daily life. You need to devote yourselves to the words and works of God. You need to have fellowship. You need to break communion with one another. And you need to worship and pray. This is the rhythm of the church of God. And, yeah. I want to keep going, but I'm going to be a good boy. I, I really long for our house to be a house that radically commits. When we see somebody that has a revelation that we don't have, instead of waiting for them to jump on your team, can we be a church that says, I want what they have? I'll tell you, this, this year, I'm a joy guy if you haven't been able to tell. When I think of the throne room, I think of angels smiling. I don't think of them crying. I think of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not holy, holy. Like, I think I see the world through the lens of joy and life and hope. That's how I see life. Now, I have other people in my life that have, that, that, that have more revelation in the awe and the reverence in the throne room of God. That like weepy, achy groan. You know what I'm talking about? The temptation for me is to stay in this joyful place and be like, eh, they're never joyful. And the temptation for here is, why are you always happy? What we need is when other people have revelations that we don't have, we get to look at them and say, I want that, so I'm going to come close and pray for me and lay hands on me and encourage me because I want the fullness of what God has for us. Amen? Let's not be scared when we see people who have different revelations than us. Let's be inspired. Let's be like, wow, there's people different than me. I want that. I'll tell you what, I communion, I would never understood the importance of it until I started hanging around Benji. Now I'm like, want him to be my personal communion buddy. <laughs> Why? Because he has revelation and communion. And I want that. Amen. All right, stand up. I'm done. That was such a good word. My goodness. Okay. I'm going to lead you with this. Psalm 133. Can you close your eyes? And can I have the ministry team come up? The prophetic ministry team and the RHSM students are going to join the ministry team tonight. And after I'm done praying, if you need healing in your body, if you need a miracle, whatever you need, please come up front and receive prayer. But here's Psalm 133. How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured out on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, 
For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. God, we say yes to homo thumidon. <laughs> we say we are, we want to be tuned to your tuning fork, Lord. We want you, Jesus, we say you are our chief desire. You are first place. And I thank you that every other thing bows to you being first place. So when we don't see unity in our house, God, we know it's because something else isn't in first place. But we say right now we repent and you are our first place. And I ask God that you would make us a house that gazes at you through the word of God that we would be a house that gazes at you through fellowship, that we would be a house of God that beholds the beauty of Jesus in communion, and that we would be a house of God that beholds you and gazes at you in worship and prayer. Build your house here, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Be blessed, church. Have a wonderful week. And if you want ministry, please.